several months ago, we taught an eight-week series uh, through the book of uh, Romans, specifically chapter 8. And uh, many Bible scholars have deemed Romans chapter 8 as the greatest chapter uh, in the Bible. And while that is a little bit debatable, it certainly is an incredible chapter. And in that great chapter, uh, there is a verse that's probably one of the most hope-filled verses in all of Scripture. And it's a promise found in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. It says this, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, who is he describing there? Those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. He's describing believers, followers of Jesus Christ. And what he's saying, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, when we examine that verse, we're reminded of this truth. It does not say that all things are good. But rather, what it says is that all things work together for good. Uh, to put a paraphrase to this thought, it would be this way. All things work together for the spiritual profit of those who belong to Jesus Christ. Scripture clearly teaches that God uses unpleasant trials and seasons of suffering to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. And they're often not pleasant, but they can be spiritually profitable if we remain under them instead of running away from them in bitterness. And the only reason we can remain under those trials it's not because we're so strong, because God gives us grace to sustain us in the midst of those trials. And so today, uh, we're on the two-year anniversary of the start of the pandemic. And so what we want to do, we thought might be helpful, is take a couple of weeks and put our theology to the test. Now, we don't preach on a lot of this is going on in the news, this is going on in the news, so we're going to gear our preaching to that. Lots of churches do that. We call that theological ambulance chasing. And so, but we thought it might be helpful as we've all been walking through this season the last couple of years, to take a couple of weeks and lean in and ask a fair question, uh, which is this. How in the world have the last two years been profitable? How can we say that with integrity, spiritual integrity? On one side, there's been death and sickness, and on the other side, the efforts to mitigate that sickness have uh, produced a pandemic of isolation, uh, depression, financial hardship, and all kinds of inner man turmoil. And so this morning, we're going to turn once again to a very familiar passage. It's a base passage for us. Drives a lot of our theology this morning at Liberty Heights. It sets our framework for our growth and change happens. So let me invite you to take your Bibles, phones, tablets, and turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17. It's on the left side of your Bible if you're wondering. Uh, the theology of change in this passage, passage drives our preaching. It drives our teaching. It drives our philosophy of discipleship, counseling, all of those things, and, and as our pastors were meeting in our preaching meeting, we meet three times every week before we actually get up here to preach and work through the text and the sermon together, what we realized, we began sketching out, here's all the ways that God could use this difficult season to produce growth in us, we realized we can't contain all of this in one sermon, if we did, it'd be really long, which I know that secretly everyone loves, and everyone loves getting to lunch late. So we decided that we're going to address this over the next two weeks in a message titled The Profitability of a Pandemic. Now, if you've heard us, uh, been here a long time, you've heard us teach through this passage before, but we learned by repetition, uh, you should be able to go this passage and break it down. It's that foundational of a passage. And if you're new, this is a key passage in understanding the theology of change and the centrality of the heart and its affections and how that drives your behavior. Some synonyms in the Bible for the word heart uh, are the word mind, soul, Spirit, it's what the Bible describes as the inner man. It's what makes you, you. It's the part of you that's made in the image of God that's distinct 
uh, from the animal kingdom. They just operate on instinct, but we have an inner man with a volitional will and emotions and all those kind of things. And so uh, in this passage, the Bible shows us the true condition of that inner man. And, and here's the news flash, a little spoiler alert, it's not flattering, all right? And so it shows that our inner man, not the outward circumstance of our life, drives who we are and certainly drives our behavior. And, and here's why that's important to be reminded of in reflecting on the past two years. All of us have been walking through, in varying degrees, a difficult and prolonged set of circumstances through the pandemic. And so what, what has that revealed about us? What, what, has, what have we leaned into? All of that are opportunities for our spiritual prophet. So Jeremiah chapter 17 Uh, We're going to look at verses 5 through 10. I'm going to kind of teach just really quickly some base principles of this passage. And then we're going to get into some application of of how we think God could have used this time in our lives. So Jeremiah 17 verse 5 begins and says, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream, listen to this, and does not fear when heat comes. It's very important. For its leaves remain green and it's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart, which is the inner man, and test the mind, mind's a synonym for heart, uh, to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Now, if you've been going to church here for a a long period of time, you know there's a phrase that you can say around here that if you want to draw our wrath, uh, just tell someone with an earshot of us, hey, just follow your heart. Terrible, terrible advice, all right? Because what's verse 9 say? My heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it, including me? And so uh, he begins to describe the condition of our inner man in this passage and how that inner man or our heart's affections ends up driving our behavior around us. So let me just give you a quick hitter here. This is a review. Quick hitter about some basic principles uh, in this passage to understand what he's teaching here about the heart, okay? So number one is your circumstances in life are not the main issue. Whatever's going on in your life and the circumstance and all the details and the players and the the cast of characters and all the, you know, all those descriptors, it's really not the main thing uh, or issue to resolve in your life, certainly when trouble comes. The circumstances in life, or what he says in this passage, are the heat. Remember what he said in, in verse, uh, what is that, verse 8? Uh, he said, uh, does not fear when the heat comes. Now, heat is representative of hardship or suffering of life in a fallen world. We're not living in paradise, we're living in paradise lost. One day, Christ will come and paradise will be restored, but in the meantime, we're living in paradise lost. And so, in a world that's been tainted by sin, every square inch of it's been tainted by sin, including my heart, guess what? The heat is representative of life and suffering in a fallen world. So he begins to describe that, he says, the person whose tree is planted by the water that sends its roots by the stream That person does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green. It's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does, listen to this, does not cease to bear fruit. 
Now, the interesting thing about heat is this, is that uh, heat has the potential for both good and bad, right? If you've ever started a fire, that fire can illuminate things, it can warm things up, but it can also consume everything in its path. And so too much heat, you get burned, too little, and you get cold. And so it has the potential to do both good and to do both harm. Well, guess what? The same thing is true of the circumstances in your life. That those circumstances, uh, or even the painful ones, they can serve to turn us to Christ and to say, hey, this season of suffering is really hard or, or it's really prolonged, and so I have no strength, and so I'm gonna put my roots down deeper in Christ, or I'm gonna get angry and bitter, and I'm gonna turn away from the Lord and trust in myself or the flesh is what verse five says. And so your circumstances are not the main issue. It's our response to the circumstances that's the problem because they reveal where our hearts are, okay? So second thing I want you to see in this passage is, is you cannot deny what's being produced. A couple of times over the year, I've been counseling with people and, and someone's wrestling through some anger and at some point I'm leaning in, I'm asking some hard questions and they'll respond in a very agitated voice. I am not an angry person. And I'm thinking, clearly not, right? Like, I'm totally mistaken here. They want to deny what's being produced out of their heart. But verse 8 says that the person whose roots are drawn deep down into the Lord when the heat comes, guess what? That They begin to bear fruit. They're not anxious when the drought comes. Uh, so fruit is being produced out of life. And fruit is just admirable traits for the Lord. It's attitudes and activities that are Christ-honoring. We, we certainly think of the fruit of the Spirit there in Galatians chapter 5. And so it is noticeable, tangible character qualities of Christ's likeness that's being produced in life. It's observable. But on the other hand, look at verse 6. What's it describe of the person? Verse 5 says, who trusts himself, who does not turn to the Lord, who instead turns inward because life is hard, the heat's too hot. Verse 6 says, he is like a shrub in the desert. And shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. So, so here's the imagery I want you to have. He's like a thorn bush. Right? He, he's a tumbleweed. One's producing fruit. One's being burned up by the sun, producing thorns. And this is the person whose life is marked by painful consequences. And, and here's what they often do. They often blame their thorn production or their their difficulty of being around, they often blame it on the circumstances. Well, I, I, wouldn't be, I wouldn't be an angry person if you wouldn't do things that would make me angry, right? Like, I'd be less angry if you weren't so dumb, amen? Now, can we just be honest? I've thought that sometimes, right? This is the person who damages the people around him unintentionally often because they're, they themselves have become uh, thorn producers, and in turn, the people around them are letting them know, hey, I'm getting stuck by your thorns. And because our hearts are wicked and deceitful, we often have no idea that we're actually producing thorns, but I promise you, do you know who does know? The people around you, because they're getting stuck with them. They're getting stuck with them, and they hurt. And so they respond, and so you cannot deny what's being produced. Some people in a difficult season are producing fruit. They're growing God is maturing them. Some people are turning away from the Lord, turning inward, and they're producing thorns, and everybody around them knows it, and they're often deceived about the reality of it. So you cannot deny what's being produced, and here's what I want you to see. 
in these two verses, one's producing fruit, one's producing thorns, the same sun that scorches one plant causes fruit to grow in another. The same difficult life circumstances for some people is producing growth in godliness and for other people it's producing anything but godliness. Same sun, different results. One's producing fruit, one's producing thorns being burned up by the heat. So you cannot deny what's being produced. Here's the third thing I want you to see in this passage is what's being produced is the result of choice, not chance. You ever have a person in your life that they just think that for, for whatever reasons, their life's just a series of bad luck. They never can connect the dots that all these unlucky outcomes are directly connected to the choices that they've made. It's simply the fruit of the choices that they've made. You know something that's convicting and both true? Every single unwise and sinful decision you've ever made, you participated in it 100%. Did you know that? And so what's being produced is a result of choice, not chance. Job's an incredible illustration. He's talking about living life in a fallen world and experiencing the, the heat of suffering. Job is the treatise on suffering. When life turned up the heat, painful loss of his children, everything that he had worked for, the one thing that he had left was the most important thing, and that's this. You say, well, it's his wife. No, that, that's not it. You'll find that out later, her response. The most important thing Job has was the ability to choose how he was going to respond to all of this suffering. Was it going to grow him in the Lord, or was he going to turn away from the Lord in anger and in bitterness? And so ultimately, Job responds by allowing his circumstances to drive him to a deeper level of trust, a deeper level of dependency, a greater confidence in God's sovereignty. And, and here's what Job said. This is incredible. Job said this, though he slay me, I will praise him. Job's wife, on the other hand, same circumstance, right? Those are her kids. That's their wealth. Their house got destroyed. Same heat raining down on their life. Job says, though he slay me, I will praise him. And Job's wife says this, you should just curse God and die. And so the circumstances are not the main issue. Job and his wife were beset with the exact same circumstances. One of them turned to the Lord, and God grew them, even though it was this painful season. One of them turned away from the Lord in bitterness. And so do you realize this is the same choice before you in every single circumstance in your life? Verse 5 says, Cursed is the man who makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord, but contrast, blesses the man who trusts in the Lord. Same people often experiencing the same circumstances, both of us living life in a fallen world, but choosing different responses. And because of that, one produces fruit or growth in godliness. The other produces thorns. Now, this is so crucial, so I want you to listen closely. The only difference between someone who produces thorns and someone who produces fruit is the choices they make in response. And many times over the last two years, guess what? We've all been living in a hard season some have had it worse than others. Some have experienced job loss. Some have experienced incredible sickness. Some families in our church have been touched by death. Some have experienced depression. Some have, so it's a little bit different, but the reality is we're all living under the same sun or the same heat of the last two years, but the, the reality is we all have a choice on how we're going to respond. We don't have a choice always on what happens to us. That's under God's sovereign control, but we do get to choose. Am I going to run to the Lord and let fruit be born out of my life in a season of suffering or am I going to turn away from him and let thorns be produced in my life 
So same circumstances, different choices. One produces fruit, one's thorns. Here's the last little truth I want you to see in Jeremiah 17, and we're going to get to some specific things. Uh, what's being produced is what's in your heart. Whatever's in the well shows up in the water. Whatever's going on in your heart, whatever your heart desires is going to show up in your life. So, so here's what that means. That before you go in a certain direction, before your feet point towards that direction, your heart is already turned there. And so do not blame on what's being produced in your life on unfavorable circumstances or uh, personality traits. You know, you ever, you ever find a person who just destroys every relationship around them and people just kind of say, well, that's just how they are. You just got to look past them, right? If you're a insecure, that, that's not a personality trait. That's a heart issue. You don't understand your identity and value in Christ. And so therefore, you're trying to ascribe value to your life through your performance, if you're angry, it's not the circumstance around you. Listen, theologically, this is bad news for somebody this morning. Theologically, no one can make you angry. They can only reveal the anger that started to reside in your heart. They can expose it, but they can't place it in there. And so what's being produced in your life is what's in your heart, whether you're deceived by that or not. Verse 9, look what he says. The heart's deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it? That's why we get into denial when someone says, hey, I, I think you've got a problem with insecurity. No, I don't. I think you've got a problem with materialism. No, I don't. I think you've got a problem with anger. No, I don't. I think, I think you're letting fear rule your life. No, I don't. Why? Because we're deceived by the affections of our hearts. And then verse 10 says, here's, here's, here's the good news and bad news. The Lord searches the heart and tests the mind. Remember, heart and mind are interchangeable. It's the inner man. He searched the heart and testified to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds or his actions. What's he saying? Hey, God knows your heart, but here's the reality. If you're deceived by your heart, it's going to show up and be proven by the actions or deeds that are playing out in your life. And so these verses show us that God does not simply focus on our behavior. Now, he doesn't ignore behavior. You ever have a person who has terrible behavior oftentimes a relationship and they say oh that's not you know you know my heart right like I do here's the problem you don't and so it doesn't ignore behavior but his focus is on our hearts because that's what's driving the behavior that, that's why the gospel is not for behavior conformity the gospel is to reorient the affections of my heart that's why when you're raising kids the goal is not to conform behavior of your children. Listen, you can teach a dog to obey, not a cat. Amen? <laughs> the goal of raising kids is to cultivate a heart that loves Jesus Christ because if that's what is in their heart, guess what? When you're not in the room and they can't get in trouble, you know what they're going to do? They're going to want to please the Lord. And so listen to these verses, but these are familiar verses for us about the centrality of the heart. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, above all else, guard your heart because it determines the outcome of your life. One translation says, it is the wellspring of your life. Whatever's in your heart is going to spring forth in your life. Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What does that mean? The clearest indicator of what's really going on in your heart is what comes out of your mouth. 
That's what he says. James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? You know what we think? Because the people around me are doing dumb things, right? Here's what he says. Don't they come from your desires, hard affections, that battle within you? I have to have this, and if you don't give it to me, you and I are going to war, is what that means. Now, here's the reality. You will never change what's going on around you until you change what's going on inside of you. One of the One of the dangers of conservative evangelical Bible teaching church like ours is this, is that if we're not careful, we can think the greatest danger to us is out there in the culture. Right, that's why we hold up signs. You're the problem. You ever see anybody holding up a sign that says, I'm the problem? Never. What's the Bible say? The greatest danger to me is my wicked heart. That's why I need the gospel to transform my heart. And so what's going on inside of me is far more important than what's going on around me. And I'm not saying things going around you shouldn't be concerned about, shouldn't pray about, shouldn't work towards, you know, God's glory and all those things. But what's going on inside of me is far more important than what's going on around me is what Scripture is teaching. And what's been consistent for everyone over the past two years is that the heat of life in a fallen world has been magnified and prolonged. And what's been inconsistent is what's being produced in people through a prolonged season of suffering. Some people have have grown tremendously in spiritual ways over the last two years. Some people have grown, but not towards godliness. They've grown more fearful. They've grown more anxious. They've grown more angry. They've grown more controlling. And so same he living in a pandemic. Some of the details are different. I totally understand that. Same heat living under this season for the last two years, but what's different is that some people have chosen to draw their roots down deeper in the Lord, so guess what? They've produced fruit, fruit, and others have produced thorns. And all the while, blaming the heat for the thorns they're producing. But you know what Jeremiah 17 says? The heat is not the problem. Your heart is the problem. And the good news is Jesus is the answer. So, a little theology there to understand what's going on in the heart and how circumstances and the heat of life in a fallen world rain down on all of us. And some people grow, and some people produce thorns. So, how can a prolonged season of heat be profitable and not just painful? Well, I want us to look at four ways the pandemic can be spiritually profitable, even if it's been painful. We're going to look at two this morning. Relax. Four, good night. Uh, Two this morning, and then we'll look at two next week, all right? So when trouble hits or the heat gets turned up, whatever phrase you like there, uh, two things I want to focus on this morning. Number one, when the heat gets turned up, number one, idols are exposed. In verse five, the prophet Jeremiah teaches us that a man who turns away from the Lord is, is cursed. Now you think, why would anyone turn away from the Lord? Because they're seeking refuge in something else other than the Lord. Now, what do we call that? We call that idolatry. Anytime you expect something or someone to do what only God was intended to do, satisfy your hearts, that is a form of idolatry. If we were to read the entire book of Jeremiah this morning, what we'd realize is the number one issue they battled is idolatry. God had established a covenant with his people. He was with them. He was for them. He loved them deeply. But they always 
They always had this sneaking suspicion there was, that there was something else beyond God, outside of God, that would satisfy our hearts even more deeply. You think, well, who in the world would do that? You and I. What's the old hymn say? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And so we turn to other things. And what do we turn to other things? We call that refuge. We call that uh, idolatry. And so how, how is the heat of a prolonged pandemic exposed idols in our life? When trouble comes and things don't go our way, guess what? Whatever's inside of us is going to come out because often when, when it's a prolonged season, guess what? We're too tired to manage our behavior. Like, like you know, a few weeks in, you're like, oh, this is kind of unpleasant, right? Like I'd plan on watching March Madness. I mean, yeah, that's okay. That's okay, right? Like six months in, right? You're like, ah, oh. right? Like 18, 19, 23 months in, you're like, are you serious? Right? Because in the short term, you can manage your behavior. But when you're worn down by suffering, you, you don't have the energy to manage your behavior anymore. Guess what comes out? Your heart. How many of you have ever been super tired and it's late at night? and your children disobeyed or disrespected you. Raise your hand if that's ever happened to you. If your hand's not raised, A, you're a liar, B, no one likes you, all right? Like you ever just find out that literally, shortly after bedtime, your child develops an insatiable thirst or hunger? And if you're tired, in those moments, what, what, what happens? You're too tired to, to manage your behavior, right? Now, for some of you, say, oh, in those moments, I just, the grace of God overwhelms me. And I just affirm that my love for them and my, my great gratitude that they're dependent on me at two in the morning, right? You ever have kids when you're little and you're dead asleep in the middle of the night and you're laying there, your eyes open, you're like, I feel like someone's watching me, and there they are, creeps, right? This far, are you asleep? Now, I, I don't respond <laughs> in loving ways. Uh, the phrase I like to use, it's pronounced in the Greek, lose your mind. Amen? Now, why is that? Because I'm too tired in that moment to, to manage my behavior. Because I don't have the energy to manage my behavior. Whatever's ruling my heart at that moment is going to spill out out of my mouth often, right? And in that moment, what is ruling my heart is often, in that moment, the idol of comfort. I deserve some rest. I deserve a little peace and quiet around here, right? I deserve to not be woken up 14 times a night. And when the idol of comfort is disrupted, guess what happens when someone threatens our idols? We punish them. We punish them is what scripture says. So let me lean in specifically, uh, application-wise, into the pandemic for just a minute. And listen, there were some surprising elements of it, right? Like one day, toilet paper aboundeth, the next day, no more. Uh, one day, master for bank robbers. The next day, uh, everybody. Real hugs turned into air hugs. Right, did you see a lot of these last two years? Right, like I didn't know some of you were gangsters. I didn't know what that is. Sanitizer became liquid gold. Like there were some shocking elements. And circumstances begin to change for everybody, different levels for different people, I get that. And many forms of suffering, both big and small, begin to enter our lives. And some of what's suffering, some of it's just inconvenience. But when our circumstances change for the worse and things weren't 
going how we thought they should go, how did we respond? We turned somewhere for answers and comfort. We sought refuge in something. Why? Because that's what our hearts do. Our hearts are driven to seek satisfaction. And so you'll find it in someone or something, or you'll find it in refuge in Jesus. So let me just touch upon, I think, three idols that probably got revealed during the most of the last year. I know, I know in my own life, some of these are very prevalent in my own life. So just three, uh, control and comfort and security. Now for some of us, the pandemic has exposed our deep need to be in control. And things started happening that, that we couldn't change and decisions we made that we didn't agree with. And, and all of a sudden, we didn't have as much control as we would like to have. And so for some, it's, it's exposed the, the idol of control. Sometimes it was the government telling us what to do. Sometimes it was our employer telling us what to do. Sometimes it was the church describing and telling us what we need to do. And, and here's what I've discovered over the last two years. I'm not the only one here who doesn't like to be told what to do. Right? <laughs> Somebody just said amen for the first time in sure Pentecostal, right there. Miracle. And I could, listen, I could, I could rattle off a laundry list of the last two years of ways that people did not respond well to this loss of control. And in turn, they lashed out at those around us. So, so, so for some of us, we didn't realize how much control controlled our hearts until control was threatened or removed, and it exposed. I didn't, I didn't respond well. I didn't respond in godliness. I responded in anger and fear and all, all kinds of things, right? So, so it could have exposed the idol of control. Now, secondly, maybe it's the idol of comfort that was exposed through a season of suffering. The pandemic interrupted the life that you were building for yourself, and you know the natural inclination of us is to build a life that drifts towards comfort. Now, nobody's working hard to build an uncomfortable life, am I right? There's nothing wrong with desiring comfort, but maybe you found comfort or refuge in some other things. Maybe you became an obsessive exerciser. That's what happened to me. That's obvious, right? <laughs> maybe you went the other way, and you put on what's become now known as the COVID-19, 19 pounds, right? So you're like, 19 pounds? That was the first six weeks, amen? Hitting it hard. Some people found refuge or comfort with Netflix or some people in alcohol begin to drink more than they did. Amazon purchasing things, house projects. You know what I think is fascinating? When you get one person who's really passionate about a house project married to a person who's not, that's a recipe for a beautiful marriage, amen? And I'm not saying that any of those things are bad things. What I'm saying is they should not be our source of ultimate comfort or refuge in those places. And during this time, the idol of comfort may have gotten exposed and you may have turned those things for refuge. They're not bad things, but when you seek refuge in anything other than Christ, good things can become God things. That's idolatry. For some people, maybe the idol that was revealed was the idol of security. Oh, this happened time and time again in the Bible. God's people were attacked by foreign enemies and they would look at the army coming against them and cower away in fear. Their, their security was being threatened and sometimes they would even run away from the Lord. The one who gave them victory after victory because they just thought, you know what? We don't feel secure anymore in resting in God's provision so we're gonna go off and find someone else and form alliances with them 
and they in turn will provide us the security that God is not doing. And some people, the pandemic threatened your security because your financial situation changed. And you began to wrestle with, is, do I really believe that God is my source of provision or is my career? Some people, the idea of security in regards to health was threatened. And so some people became, took obsessive measures to increase their feeling of security. And you can say out of your mouth all you want, God's my source of security and provision. But if you're obsessive about forming your own security, you don't really believe that. Other people became hermits because they were afraid that security was no longer possible. So I'm just going to shut her down because security is not, not possible. Now, there's nothing wrong with taking measures to provide for your own security and safety. Listen, if you walk out of your house, I've heard a lot of faith over fear conversations the last two years, you know, fears of sin, that kind of thing. Listen, let me let you know a secret. If you walk out of your house and there's a lion on the front porch and you say, I'm not afraid, I'm a person of faith, you're not a faith-filled person, you're a fool, all right? You're not a fool, your food is what you are. So God has hardwired us to be concerned and, and show appropriate caution when it be a ruling desire. There's nothing wrong with that. There's, the Bible talks about saving money, warns us about hoarding. So the Bible says wisdom is saving. Nothing wrong with enjoying comfort, nothing unspiritual about managing a life that constantly feels out of control. You know, your life's totally out of control, right? And like, you know, no one ever says, my life's completely out of control. It just shows that I trust God in the details. No, it shows you're letting your life manage you. There's nothing wrong with any of those things, all right? But if you're listening, say amen. It's when those desires for those things become ruling desires, it's when you find more refuge in the ability to have those things, maintain those things, comfort, security, control, than what Christ offers us with his abiding presence. Now, here's the tricky thing. Idols creep in unawares, and we often don't even know they're there, right? We're deceived by our own hearts. James chapter 4 very clearly describes the progression of an idol. It goes from a desire, which is a God-given thing. That desire grows into a demand, and when someone won't acquiesce or meet that demand, I judge them as being unfair, unloving, whatever the case is, and then I punish them. How do you know if an idol's taken root, if a desire's grown into a full-blown demand, it's because punishment is meted out when that demand is not met. And so if I have a desire to have comfort, and that grows into a demand, and my kids interrupt me, and I'm going to scream at them and discipline them in anger, guess what? That's a sure sign that comfort's grown from a desire into a demand. How do I know? Because I punished them when they threatened it. And I think if we're honest, there's been a fair amount of anger and punishment towards individuals and organizations who have threatened our idols over the past 24 months. Nothing wrong with expressing concern, but when I'm willing to sin against you to get what I want, let's just call that what it is, it's an idol. When school boards have to be escorted out of meetings by police, why? Because that's idolatry. Someone threatened my idol of control or security or fill in the blank, and I'm going to punish them. When you try to destroy people who disagree with you politically instead of viewing them as someone who made the image of God, why? You're punishing them, not disagreeing with them. Why? Because that's idolatry. And the reason we've titled this sermon The Profitability of the Pandemic is we've learned that, that the pandemic, listen, it was not our main problem. 
It's not the heat, right? The sun is not the problem. The heat's been turned up. What's happened is that that heat has revealed idols in our life and sometimes control and sometimes comfort and sometimes security. But here's the good news. If God is exposing that in your life, here's the good news. You're only one repentant prayer away from receiving his grace this morning. We're going to go over a few minutes this morning. Is that okay? All right, totally rhetorical. I'm going to go on anyway. Amen? All right, so point two, and I will hurry. Point two, uh, what we learned during this time is relationships prove vital. Relationships prove vital. I remember the first time uh, in March, March 15th, 2020, uh, first time in my life, I preached a sermon with full gusto and passion and accuracy, I hope, to an empty room. And just preaching into a camera. And at first, like, like so, so every pastor knows that your Saturday night's not free. You're going over your notes, you're editing, you're studying every single Saturday night. That's what happens at every single teaching pastor's house. Every single Saturday. So at first, we're like, hey, I don't have to do that on Saturday, and I'm going to watch a service online in my jammies. Right? Like at first, that wasn't too hateful. But over a period of time, I hope that there was a longing in your heart. Some churches didn't even stream online. You know why? They said because God has a way of producing a longing in our hearts that's good for us in the absence of gathering. Several of our campuses, there's a sign that says this, anonymity is the enemy of discipleship. So so what does that mean? If you're anonymous, and some of you are in the room this morning, but let's just be honest, you're anonymous, you're not involved, there's no relationships, you don't know anyone, no one knows you, you're not building that kind of stuff, you're anonymous, then guess what? You're in trouble spiritually. Why? Because your heart is wicked and deceitful. And God's given us two tools to fight against the deceitfulness of our heart. Number one is the word of God. It's like a two-edged sword, the Bible says in Hebrews 4, 12, that separates the desires and affections of our hearts. It lays them bare. But the second tool is the people of God. Because sometimes I can read the word of God, and you know what I can say when I read the word of God? I can say, man, that's a convicting word. I know someone who needs to hear that. And so the people in this room are God's gift in your life. And I know, listen, I know look around, some are weird birds, amen? But the people in this room are God's gift in our life. And hopefully that longing for relationships proved vital and the power of that. Now, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, what's it say? Go back. The heart's deceitful above all things and is exceedingly corrupt. Uh, who, who can know it? Well, the answer is not me. I'm deceived by it. And so what do I need? I need people speaking truth into my life. The Bible calls that admonishment. Admonishment is uh, instruction that's corrective in nature. Now, do we need encouragement? Of course we do. Proverbs says a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. It's incredibly valuable is what that means. But I found, I don't usually have to convince people that we need encouraging people in their life. What I found, and convinced myself, is that we do need people who are willing to speak hard truths in our lives. Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. What does that mean? I didn't want to hear that. I didn't want to believe that. But I needed to hear that. So our heart deceives us in all kinds of ways. I've got a list here, but for the sake of time, I won't, I won't read through this. And so verse 9 is true of all of us. So what's that mean? We need people on the outside to point these sinful attitudes and actions 
that we're blind to on the inside. And the reason we pulled down our live stream is because of that conviction. That cannot happen. Like, could you imagine if I came to the screen and said, hey, that's enough donuts. Put them down, right? It doesn't happen. We don't just need information. We need information lived out in the context of relationships. And so I hope that got elevated during that time. So this is important. Information alone is not enough. We pulled down our live, little statistic. We pulled down our live stream. The next week, our attendance grew by 130 people in one week. Someone came back, so I guess I gotta come back to church now. And I said, I'm even more impressive live. Amen? Colossians 3 said we need to admonish one another in all wisdom. That doesn't happen online. Paul says admonishment is needed. And listen to what the Bible says. I'm not talking about harsh, rebuke, professional fault-finding, critical spirits. I'm talking about humble, gentle, loving, grace-saturated admonishment. Listen to this, what the Bible says in here. Proverbs 10, 17, whoever ignores correction leads others astray. Proverbs 12, 1, whoever ignores correction lacks wisdom. Proverbs 13, 18, whoever heeds correction is honored. Proverbs 15, 5, whoever heeds correction shows prudence. Proverbs 15, 10, he who hates correction will die. Proverbs 15, 32, whoever heeds correction gains understanding. Paul Tripp in his book, Dangerous Calling, speaking of pastors and them not having anyone to speak in their lives and pastor them sometimes. Here's what Paul Tripp said. I think it applies to everybody, not just pastors. He said, I've, I've now come to understand that I need others in my life. I now know that I need to commit myself to living, listen to this, an intentionally intrusive, Christ-centered, grace-driven, redemptive community. I've realized how much I need warning, encouragement, rebuke, correction, protection, grace, and love. And if this is true, he says, wouldn't it be the height of arrogance to think that I would be okay left to myself. And so I hope that season of temporary separation produced a longing in your hearts to say, you know what, there's something missing. It's not information because I can watch anybody online. Listen, you can watch people better than me online. Well, the worship, you, you, can, you can plug anything, you can listen to anything you want. Well, you, listen, you can even give money online. You think, is that the same? I'll just tell you this, we're gonna cash your check, Amen. But you know what you can't get online? Life on life discipleship. People encouraging you when you're faint hearted and admonishing you when you're unruly is what the scripture says. And so I hope that temporary season of separation said, wow, relationships prove vital in a season of suffering. And because those things could happen, then even though the last 24 months has been painful, guess what? It can also be profitable. In seasons of suffering, listen to this and we're done. Seasons of suffering, not the absence of God's presence, they're the evidence of God's activity and a display of his tangible mercy. All right? Come back next week for part two. All right? Let's pray together. Bow your heads if you would. With your head bowed this morning, I just want to ask you one simple but hard question. 
over the last two years, what's been more consistently produced in your life? Thorns or fruit? Can you look back at these last two years and say, man, all things do really work together for good? And can you thank God for a prolonged season of suffering because it's produced some incredible fruit in your life? If that's true of you, don't feel guilty about that. Right now, if that's true of you, would you just stop and thank the Lord for his work in your heart? Because that's solely his grace that produces that. That's the supernatural work of God in our lives. We want to complain, grumble, yell. God's produced godliness in you and God's grown you this past two years and you've produced fruit. Don't feel guilty about that. Thank God right now for his grace. But if the honest testimony of your life is, you know what, there's been a lot more thorns than fruit. So my idols have been exposed, battling anger, anxiety, fear, all kinds of things. Would you just confess that to the Lord? Would you just agree with God about that sin? And then would you just repent of that and say, Lord, no no more. I'm turning away from that. And Lord, through your grace, I want my roots to go even deeper. I want to abide in your presence even more fully. And so when the next season of suffering comes, whatever it is, however long it is, I want to produce fruit for the Lord. I want non-Christians to look at my life and realize that Jesus really is beautiful. Father, I'm grateful that even in hard seasons, prolonged seasons, God, you don't leave us, you move towards us. And so Lord, I pray that we would look at this time and reflect back on it and see your hand and your grace made tangible in our lives. And God, I pray that we'd also realize why pandemics come around about every hundred years. Lord, it's not the last season of suffering anybody in this room will experience. And so, Lord, help us to put our roots down deep. So when the heat comes, we're not afraid. Help us to not trust in ourselves. Help us to turn to Jesus as our refuge. We pray all that in his name. Amen.